You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host and Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, featuring interviews with key people on the ground in Ukraine and experts in academics, medicine, arts, and combat. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting for the Pacifica Radio Network from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest is Patrick Patterson, a photographer originally from Southeast Texas. He studied with renowned photographer Keith Carter at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. Patrick's work is a reflection of how photography can influence change and the importance of giving voice to those who are not heard. Each photograph is a document, evidence that someone or something has been seen. And his recent work has taken him to Poland and Ukraine, where he has documented one of the largest refugee crises in the world and exposed Russian war crimes. This episode of Ukraine 242 contains graphic descriptions of war atrocities, violence, it may not be appropriate for all listeners. He spoke to us about the atrocities he witnessed, what it's like being targeted and shelled by the Russian army, and his intimate approach to photographing people at the worst moment of their lives. Patrick Patterson, welcome to Ukraine 242. Thank you for having me. When did you first go to Ukraine? I arrived at the Poland-Ukraine border early March. I'm a, a long-term documentary photographer, and I have a colleague who is in Warsaw who is a journalist there, and we had been speaking on and off before the invasion took place, uh, kind of getting a sense of what was going to happen. And after getting off the phone with him, I realized that I needed to head that direction. So I'm self-funded. I'm independent. I'm not working with any agencies or any of the big news media. It's just me. Most of my work has been around Texas death row, social justice issues in the United States, and also focused on immigration in the Midwest. So this would be my first experience being in a place where there's a war. Was it easy to cross into Ukraine from Poland? It's really easy. I fly to Kraków now and take the train to the border and you get off and you get on a new train and you take it into Kyiv. It's it's a long journey, but it's relatively easy to get to Ukraine. I would think there are factors contributing to the length of that journey. There certainly are. You usually could fly into Kyiv. There's actually two airports in Kyiv. But really, it's the train ride that, that is long. You cannot fly into Ukraine. The airspace is closed to all aviation aside from military. When you decided to cross into Ukraine, where did you go? On all of my trips, Kyiv was always my first place to go. And ultimately, it's a good central place to be or getting to areas closer to the front lines on the east. 
I traveled back and forth from the U.S. to Ukraine on two separate trips. And then I decided in August that I would plant myself in Kyiv and rented a flat there. So I've been based in Kyiv since the end of August. And this past five months has been a very different experience than the first three trips that I've had there. Why is that? You know, the the first trip there, it was actually my first trip to Europe. So not only am I navigating these unknown circumstances of navigating a conflict, working within a country that's at war, this was my first European trip. And I was solo and had no one with me. So there was the initial stress of just not knowing. Once you go and you and you learn a little bit about the area, you feel a little bit more comfortable and you do it again, you feel a little bit more comfortable. The first trip was about the emotional toll of all the women and children coming, uh, seeing people that have walked away from not only all of their possessions in their homes, but some of these people are leaving after experiencing great loss, the loss of life. And when I went back to Ukraine on the last two trips, I spent a lot of time in areas that were occupied in the first part of the war. So Bucha, Irpin, Boryanka, uh, Cherniv, People were sharing their stories with me. So it was a, that shared secondary trauma of, of reliving these stories through people's experiences. Seeing the devastation and seeing the impact that Russia has had on people there. But those first three trips, I never experienced any missile attacks or artillery shelling. Uh, I, I hadn't seen death. But on this last trip, I was living amongst those experiences at that point, witnessing the bodies being exhumed from the mass graves to smelling you know, bodies that were decomposing in the woods, you know, those are smells that will will never go away. Being in artillery attacks, being in missile attacks and having drones landing near you. So I would say that the first three trips that I took, I felt more like I was in an area that had had war. But the last five months I've been in a war Your photographs are incredibly moving and expressive. I wonder what it's like when you see people in agony to raise a camera and take a picture of them in that moment. How does that feel? There are many places and things that I wanted to photograph and I didn't, it wasn't my place to do it. Most of the photographs that I've taken, I've built relationships with the subjects that I'm photographing. All of my photographs from Ukraine, anyone in those photographs, I have some type of relationship built with those individuals. I spent time with them. I I sat and listened to their story. So I think it's important to be a human being and let that person know that you're there to record their story and try to share it with as many people that want to listen. And they understand the importance of getting their stories out. They want the world to know what type of aggression Russia has sent their way. They want the world to see and hear and listen to the brutalities that that are happening there every single day. Since you're not working on deadlines for publication, how do you structure a day? Do you have a plan? I work organically. Ukraine has a a media center. So they send out daily schedules of what's happening in the Kiev area. So sometimes I would look at that and guided media tours through the Ukrainian military. Everything else is my own research to say, okay, I I have an interest. I want to go to this area. You use social media to build contacts in those areas. You use your resources and your contacts that are around you. 
everyone is connected at this point. So a lot of the volunteers are, are connected throughout the entire country. Without them, it would be a completely different war. And so if you want to go someplace, usually someone within a volunteer group that you are familiar with can direct you to somebody. Things just kind of happen naturally. And, and that's kind of how I wanted to work. Like I knew I wanted to go to Kharkiv, never been to Kharkiv. And I knew I wanted to see and hear stories of how people were living in Kharkiv, the people that stayed. And so you find somebody that knows the area and has connections with the people who are there. And when you show up with someone that the community trusts, then they look at you differently. So in all of my circumstances, I'm not showing up as an American who can speak a little Ukraine trying to say, hey, may I take your picture? I'm showing up with people who are well-established in these communities. Can you tell us what you saw in Kharkiv? Oh, man. Uh, Kharkiv has been just crushed. They're still getting not only missiled, some of the districts in Kharkiv are close enough to, to still get artillery fire. And so you can hear the outbound artillery cannons going off. On my phone, when the warning went off, it's usually just a missile in proximity. But this was the first time that I had the artillery cannon on there. And it's like, you feel differently. You're like, well, okay, I'm, I'm close. I'm almost at the, the Russian border. And people are tired. You know, you have families that are ripped apart there between pro-Russian and pro-Ukraine. You know, someone that I know, his brother and wife immediately left and went to Russia. And like, wow, like, how do you process that? And the Ukrainian brother's response to me was that he told his brother that if he ever saw him, he would kill him. And I kind of just sat back and I was like, oh, wow. And he very quickly reiterated, I'm serious. If I see my brother again, I will, I will kill him. That's the anger right now. That's how people feel. Were you able to photograph Russians? No, I, I certainly would not want to go into Russia at all. I have no desire to be there. You know, the closest I was to Russians was in Bereslav on the Dnipro River, maybe about an hour from Kherson. Directly across the Dnipro River is a city called Kavkavka. It's still occupied. We were setting up Starlink at a community center. And I think there were still collaborants in the neighborhood that called into Kavkavka and let them know that we were there. The fog cleared off the Dnipro River and you could look into the city of Kavkavka, which is about a kilometer and a half, so not far. And if we can see into Kavkavka, certainly Russian troops can see us as well. So about two and a half hours into our stay, we started getting shelled with artillery from across the river. Russian soldiers knew that we were there, and they started firing artillery at us. There's no doubt about what happened that day. 100%, we were the target. Now, when you say we, is this a group of media? or No. So, so I went in with the director of the civilian military administration for that region and the current mayor of Bereslav. He was kidnapped earlier on and then was released. And then a NGO group of volunteers called AIR, that's the English translation. And they're originally from Bereslav. That's their hometown. So they were bringing in supplies to a community center there and setting up Starlink and to and a half hours in, the screeching whistles start coming towards us and hitting next to us and exploding, you know. And as we left in our vehicles, those explosions kept following us. So we were definitely, they call it, the term is called bracketing, where it, they, they hit one side of you and they hit on the other side, and then they start working their way in. And ultimately what happens is that they wanted to catch and destroy everything in between that bracket. What made you a target? We're there setting up a communication device 
for seven months, they haven't been able to speak to anyone outside of Bereslav. So while Kherson and Bereslav in these communities are still getting hit from across the river, I think Russia's made it clear as much as they can, they want to stop humanitarian aid from arriving in any places in Ukraine. And so with the fog lifting on the Dnipro and gauging on when the last shelling was in Bereslav and where it happened, speaking to people on the street and people who are familiar with that area, they were confident that they were shelling directly at us. How far away were they when they were shelling? A kilometer and a half. So you could see what they were doing? You don't have time to react to see who's doing it. All of a sudden, you hear a screeching whistle coming at you right over our car. And the house that we're parked out in front of is hit. You know what direction it's coming from. That doesn't make you stop. All you're trying to do is stay alive. And your body is tensing up. I can still feel it now. And I, I only feel it on my left side because that's the side that was exposed. And when you hear that screaming whistle, you're just bracing for the impact and to feel something hit you. So you just want to leave. You want to escape. And that's all you're thinking about. Were you or anyone ever successful in getting Starlink hooked up there? Also, yes. could you describe for our audience what Starlink is? It's a satellite that allows people to plug in their regular iPhone and Wi-Fi to get service. So Starlink is really important for communities that have no electricity and no forms of outside communication. So generators and Starlink are two very important resources right now in these communities. And I think you started to say that eventually Starlink was set up there, right? Starlink is set up in that community center, correct. You are listening to Ukraine 242, an exploration of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. I am Anne Levine from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, reporting for the Pacifica Network. Thank you for joining us. Our guest is American photographer and documentarian Patrick Patterson. He has been living and working in Ukraine, documenting the suffering of the Ukrainian people. You have people who are living in homes that have no walls and windows in the middle of winter. So warm clothing, sleeping bags, things that can provide heat and food. I think those are the most important things right now. And the other point I think is important to note is that one of the most fascinating things that I've seen, and not necessarily in a good way, is how much the Ukrainian military rely on volunteers to get them the supplies they need. While the Ukrainian government is doing a good job in providing the startup gear and, and supplies to, to go fight, when a battalion has fire in their bunker and they lose all their stuff, they're relying on volunteers to get them new boots, sleeping bags, and volunteers are providing metal-plated vests. And I think it's important to realize that what maybe someone has painted in their mind as the soldier or military and what the soldier actually is might be two different things. We're talking about film directors and ballet dancers and teachers and stay-at-home moms. This is the military that joined when this happened almost a year ago. And at the end of the day, they were invaded. And there are a lot of people who are in the military right now that never thought they'd be in the military and probably didn't have a desire to be in the military, but they understood that their country was being invaded and this is what they had to do. 
Ukrainians are using their own cars and painting them green to take to the front lines. It's important to recognize that when people are making their contributions, to understand how and where that contribution is going to be used and possibly what type of restrictions are associated with that. People are making donations to people and have no idea that there are restrictions to support just civilians, and they don't want that to support the military. And so my point is, is that I think that there needs to be more outside support for the Ukrainian military, and specifically the soldiers who are on the front lines. Be fed and clothed just as much as the people who are living in the villages. You know, all these big aid packages coming into Ukraine that are supporting the military. We're talking about tanks and missiles and the heavy ticket items. I'm talking about basic needs supplies, a pair of boots that have a sole on the bottom now. And if they aren't receiving the supplies that they need, then the, the very people that they're trying to protect and the very people that people are trying to support with the humanitarian aid, they're not going to get it. So I just think that the people who are on the front lines right now could use a little bit more support from from some of the NGOs being less restrictive and just allowing some of that aid to have less restrictions on who it goes to. People ask me frequently about which NGOs are best to donate to. Do you have anything to recommend? Central Kitchen's doing an amazing job, and there's a lot of big NGOs that are, are doing a lot of great things. But I think it's really amazing when you have these NGOs that consist of maybe two to three people. And then those NGOs all collaborate with each other, and essentially now you have this giant collaborative of volunteers. And they're able to get aid into areas that maybe wouldn't be known about, you know, like the Red Cross or something like that, because there's no personal connection. So there is a really amazing volunteer organization called AIR. That's the English translation. And the easiest way to find them is just to go on Facebook and look up the woman named Gala Kavan. It's uh, G-A-L-A-K-A-V-U-N. Gala Kavan. It's G-A-L-A-K-A-V-U-N. And if you just send her a direct message, she can get you set up on their website with what they're doing. And they're hitting communities that are really small villages, and they're also supporting the front lines in the military. Thank you for that. That's great to have that information. They're doing a great job. They were recognized by the mayor of Kiev for their work that they've been doing since the war started. They were awarded a prestigious volunteer award in October. Can you tell us something about war crimes that you've been documenting? You were able to photograph some mass graves. How did you get there? We were there on a guided tour that was given through the military administration. Their press corps is who arranged that trip both to Izum and to Liman, both places recently liberated. We were there, I think, on the second day after Izum was liberated. So three days before we get there, it was still occupied. Can you describe some of that for us? Sure. So in in Izum, on the town outskirts, is this pine forest with sandy soil. And Russian soldiers made people living in Izum stack bodies in the backs of trucks, and they were transported to this forest. And Ukrainian civilians dug the holes and prepared the bodies and buried them. If they had belongings with them, those belongings were also put in. Some of the bodies were able to be wrapped in blankets. Some of the crosses had their person's name, date of birth, and the day that they died. And all of them had a number. There's one cross that always stands out in my mind. It's cross number 332. 
Cross 332 didn't have a name or a date of death. There's no identification on that cross. And when that body was exhumed, there was a piece of paper that had 332 written on it that was attached to that person's clothing. So you know, those are like the small details. Um, and they all weren't buried at the same time. It was over a course of time. And as they're being buried in this same forest, it's also where a tank battalion of Russians were. They're like tank bunkers where the tank can go into the hole and it's flush with the surface of the earth. So Russian soldiers were living in this forest with these mass graves. So, you know, that's one place in, in Kherson region, a person that worked for the local government there was tortured once a week and there would be injections on the table and the person who was doing the torturing would explain to them if you pass out we'll use this injection and this will wake you back up and we will only stop when you agree that you're going to be pro-russian and from what i've learned that tells the war crime investigators who is actually controlling these torture chambers and it's the secret police of moscow because the average russian soldier wouldn't have that process that's too technical it's very tied to the secret police of moscow so in addition to having these heinous crimes like in bucha where russian soldiers are shooting civilians and targeting them and where russian soldiers are raping children and mothers you also have the secret police from moscow that are doing these interrogations in, the, in these torture chambers where were these torture chambers? Uh, torture chambers are being found all over the place. There's in most of the larger places that have been occupied, they're finding places where they've conducted torture. And uh, I know in military town in Hestomol, which is a suburb of outside of Kiev, within the first month, average Russian soldiers were removing civilians from the bomb shelter and lining them up and dry firing their rifles at them and laughing as if they were executing them. And they had no idea that these rifles weren't loaded. These are the stories coming from the people. And for me, where we are right now with this war, the narrative is shifting. We're going into a year and we're talking about aid packages. We're talking about leopard tanks and the types of missiles that are being used. And we're speaking less about the people that are experiencing these great tragedies. When you say Bucha, most people think of people laying in the streets that were executed riding their bikes. And people couldn't believe their eyes what they were seeing. And that really propelled the mass donations from around the world. But what I want the world to know is that Bucha and, and Izum, these places are happening every single day right now in Ukraine. These mass carnages are still happening today, and it won't stop until this war ends. But our mass news speaks of aid packages. What are your plans to do with all of these photographs and documents that you are making? My plan is to do more lectures within the universities, within communities, certainly gallery exhibitions, and then applying for grants using the, the work that I have to continue to fund my work. I'm self-funded, so I haven't earned anything by doing this. I've only spent money to do this. For me, it's important that these stories get shared because when someone shares the most awful thing that's ever happened to them, it's my responsibility at that point to make sure that that gets out. Because if not, then I'm just one person listening to someone's story and I'm making them relive that traumatic experience. Are you planning to go back to Ukraine? Certainly. Absolutely. 
my connection with that side of the world is so incredibly strong. And I have experienced and shared so many difficult moments with people. And I think that creates a very unique bond and it creates a sense of family. And when you're not within that group, you feel alone. Coming back into the U.S., I feel lost and I feel disconnected. It's a very lonely feeling. And I don't think that that passes. The trauma lives in your body. So I think that that's one of the difficulties that I'm feeling right now. I want to be back at my home there. It's also important to be here as well. But it's incredibly challenging to be away from the people that you've experienced so much stuff with. Where can we see your photographs on my website, I'm uploading a weekly blog about my trip now. It's williampatrickphotography.com. That's williampatrickphotography.com. My Instagram handle as well, it's P-I-D-D-A-P-A-T. That's P-I-D-D-A-P-A-T. And then also on Facebook, Patrick Patterson. Well, it's been incredible to hear your stories And I thank you for sharing such intimate tales of what you've been through. Please stay safe and send us your photographs as they come. Thank you for having me. Пахне весною, очі вже звикли до втоми, надто багато причин, мрів, як нам буде знов добре з тобою, ні корабельні гармати. Не розіб'ють мою мрію, віру ніколи не зрадить серце моє. Буде новіку стояти праведне місто Марії, доки над гордим азовом сонце встає. Небо гримить над Азовом, Воно карматами б'є, Свечора навіть бетон Пахне війною. Думати, як буде завтра, Часу немає причин, Серце й руки давно Звикли тобою. Mari by Okian Elzi. Our thanks to Patrick Patterson. Patrick Patterson is from Southeast Texas. Patrick's work has appeared in U.S. and international press, including Playboy magazine De Kleine Amsterdamer and Poland Monthly. He has spent much of his career documenting human rights and conflict through photographic narratives. 
Patrick's work on undocumented migrants in the Midwest provides an opportunity for viewers to question their biases of people crossing the U.S. border. His work on Texas death row sheds light on wrongful convictions based on racial bias. And his recent work has taken him to Poland and Ukraine. To see his photographs and for more information, go to williampatrickphotography.com. That's williampatrickphotography.com. You can also see photographs on Instagram at P-I-D-D-A-P-A-T. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg for the Pacifica Network. Recording by Michael Levine. To see pictures of our guests, go to ukraine242.com. If you wish to send a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, please call 510-883-3115 and record your message. Your words will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast throughout Ukraine on Kraina FM's 24-station radio network. This is Anne Levine. Thank you for listening. Until next week on Ukraine 242.